0: All business people ask themselves, how much should I charge for the product or service I'm providing? How should I negotiate to leave the least money on the table, and not just for one transaction, but for the long run? Today's episode is the second part of our interview with Jay Jacobs. Jay's former company, Rapid Manufacturing, grew at an average rate of 32% annually from 2010 to 2017. And one of the key reasons for the growth was shrewd pricing for the parts he sold. Jay also co-founded Paperless Parts, a sophisticated software platform that assists manufacturing companies in quoting and pricing jobs. On today's episode, Jay is going to discuss the strategies that you can use the next time you have to ask yourself, what should I charge for what I'm selling? If you haven't listened to the first half of the interview in the previous episode, I suggest you check it out before listening to this one. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graf. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graf Pinkert has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit, but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service, Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company, but for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graph Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller, putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to graphpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I was listening to your podcast, trying to prepare, and uh, I saw something about pricing it was you, you actually did a whole series about pricing work and this is something you know in our experience so far of of selling companies the buyer says before they're buying it i i'm gonna raise prices and this is one of the ways i'm going to you know improve the profitability and you know i mean us on the outside we go yeah duh that that sounds great um you clearly know what you're talking about. I'm not in the position to know exactly, because the machinery business is just—I mean, it's it's a whole nother world, and it isn't. So, let's just go over how do you look at the prices you have on parts, um, and then uh, deciding you know whether you want to raise prices or even lower prices. And I know you have experience doing you know very s- small runs. Um, we, you know, our, our customers are doing, you know, some of them are doing small things, but a lot of them are doing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of parts. It's probably pretty much the same with figuring out the pricing for the stuff or, or isn't it?
1: Well, I like to say the right price is the price that someone will pay for your parts and as the volumes go up, the competition goes up. It becomes more monetized. I like competition. It's One of the reasons I started Rapid is there was no competition for prototype sheet metal parts in the beginning, really. And there's a spectrum there.
0: The, you said you do like competition, or you don't like competition? No, I, I don't like. Competition. Yeah, of course. You want I, you want yeah. you want to be in a category one. But let's say whether you have competition
1: or not, I. I have a theory that that I need to explain, which hopefully someday I'll write up a little white paper for paperless parts called, what they call the pricing triangle. And I'll try to describe it visually, though it's, it would be much better. Think of a XY and on the vertical line is the price. On the horizontal line is the number of RFQs or the um, parts that can be made. And you have a triangle. Think of the letter A, and you have that range in the middle of it. Um, That range is your capacity. So at a certain price, it will touch the two sides of the triangle. And that's sort of perfect. You are using all of your capacity. If you price the parts too high, then you're going up on the vertical axis. You're not going to get enough orders to... Meet your capacity. You know you've got excess capacity. If you price too low, there's a gap between that horizontal line on the A and sides, and that's you don't have enough capacity to meet the orders that come in. Okay. So you let's say you you have though that 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 bridge line mm-hmm. capacity, mm-hmm. and you want to raise prices. Well, what you have to do at least the way I look at it, is you have to create more demand. So you have to broaden the base of the triangle so that when you raise that, instead of extending out the sides of the triangle, the triangle has broadened enough to meet your capacity. So you really put a lot of effort into sales and marketing and that's hmm. that's my forte. And what I did a lot at Rapid is we,
0: we were a marketing machine Right. And you, you were a manufacturer's rep and, you know, so. At at one point. Yeah. Yeah. What you want
1: to do is you want to match your capacity, the price. And if you want to raise prices, you better, create more demand. And in manufacturing, it's actually a lot easier than a lot of other industries because many shops don't have salespeople or the salespeople are inside or they don't spend a lot of money on marketing. And you look at websites of, of some shops, and the last update was maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunity to sell and market in the making world. And that will drive an increase in merge queues. You better have your estimating process ready to handle more, which is what we were good at, at Rapid, and what Amplish Starts it's sell that thing you do though now your win rate goes down however your profitability is going to go up because you're you're getting more for the parts what we did at rapid though is we were constantly raising prices we were also adding more capacity so we add the capacity to finance the growth we it wasn't like that was all or or even it didn't keep going up and up and up pretty much stayed 20 to 22%. However, it allowed us to buy more equipment, hire more people, expand our facilities, and in essence, over time, increase the value of the company. What we did is a combination of raising the prices and expanding the capacity, and we keep broadening the base of the triangle.
0: What about getting more out of your capacity, just figuring out better processes? Was that as powerful as buying more machines?
1: It's sort of like looking at, if you have a fixed income, and you want more money to save you, you have to cut your expenses you can only commit your expenses so much you can only improve your internal manufacturing capacity so much if you want more income to save you really need to add more earnings uh and you need to add more equipment and facilities and people um, because you can only go efficient and yeah we we did that we we did our best there ours was our goal though really this was part of the fun part of rapid our goal wasn't to increase our efficiency to get excess capacity ours was we had to keep delivering parts to people in this one to two weeks and and we took expedites this is something that a lot of shops don't want to do they don't want to get paid for making parts faster when a customer wants them we had a formal process and we could turn parts around It was right there on the quote. You know, the standard lead time was seven business days for sheet metal parts. If you wanted it five days, it was a twenty-five percent adder. Four days, fifty percent adder. Three days, seventy-five percent adder.
0: That's pretty cool. And so, people don't do many people do that, or more people do that now with paperless parts, or yeah, we make it
1: really easy with paperless parts. And one of the things that it does is it empowers the customer to make that decision, and you don't have to have a conversation. Again, you think about efficiency; you have to call or email or whatever, back and forth between the customer and the shop, you created all this friction. I have a phrase I used to tell people, we want to create a frictionless business environment. And our ideal customer was one who emailed in an RFQ or even better used our SolidWorks app. We sent back a quote, they sent back an order, we made the parts and shipped them and we never talked to them.
0: Interesting. See, that's the opposite of the machinery business, because then you you don't get the serendipity when you're just emailing and boom, 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 business. Now you're more, way more efficient, but you never know. If you called them on the phone, they might want some other part too.
1: Well, our estimating software allowed us to do is it took out the rote and gave us more time for value add. And there were enough RFQs that came in. Let's, for example, let's say there was something that we couldn't do, that we would know, quote. We call the customer because we now had time and maybe figure out with them. They they didn't need it to be this material. They could substitute that. You can have those serendipitous conversations because you've created the time. I said our ideal customer was like that because the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. let's say 80% it it would have been great. Rado's law, 80% of the orders. We never talked to anybody, but the other 20% of things we did and, and and it still blew my mind at, at the end. We we were one company, Rapid Sheet Metal, open machine, we called ourselves Rapid. And our salespeople would call somebody who was buying machine parts and say, yeah, you know, we do sheet metal parts. And they'd go, really? And it, it's like, what do we have to do to make you aware of this? It, those conversations, as you say, have
0: to happen from
1: serendipity to
0: rear its head. Do you feel like, because you had the name rapid it planted something in the culture in the people's minds that you know just added that little subconscious yeah. energy yeah our tagline was we manufacture time Manufacture time right Cause time is the only thing you can't replace the yeah. only thing we manufacture time and you
1: know what the other thing is this there was funny that I learned is if you keep people really busy they bitch less, hmm. and we had a always had a lot going on in the shops, and yeah, people were busy,
0: unless they feel like they're overworked and they don't have time, and they get frustrated by that. Yeah, we and that happened at
1: times, and we had a lot of mechanisms for communication in the shop, and we went overboard on it, and still, when we did team member feedback, they would always ask for more communication, and like oh, I. I
0: no, unless I was standing next to you every day, I don't know what else I could do. One thing I find interesting about the parts making parts business is that you're, you know, if material cost goes up, you're basically allowed to go to your customer, or it's or it's standard to go to the customer and say, "I'm sorry, material prices have gone up. I'm charging you more." And mm-hmm. I don't know—is there haggling, or is it usually pretty smooth um, when that happens?
1: It ends the shops shop will get burnt once by it before they make sure that that's a clause in the contracts, and, um, particularly for long, long-term long agreements. And it does happen, and the OEMs don't necessarily like that because they want a predictable cost. However, you need your shop to be in business, to survive. And, uh, if you're not giving them the pricing relief, they aren't going to be able to keep making the investments. So it's going to be a good supplier for you.
0: Is there ever a time where you could... Charge a ton for a customer because you can make it, you know, in a tenth of the time as somebody else because you have different equipment or different processes. Say you have a multi spindle, okay? Is there ever a time where you don't want to take as much as the market can give you? Because maybe they'd find out about it, or maybe, I don't know, you know, people say, people have said in other interviews, you know, you don't want to gouge the customer. Um, I suppose part of it is the long game, right? Versus the short game.
1: Well, as I said, we had pretty standard formulas on is the parts faster, what it would be, and yeah, I could see that if you weren't as transparent with your quicker term pricing, and let's say
0: the customer is allowed to know what your cost is to make the part. Is that how it works? No, 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 absolutely not.
1: However. If you're putting a quote out there and they say they want a chart in a day, and we quoted a thousand dollars, and we charged them ten thousand dollars, that'd be gouging. Yeah, you know, if we charged them twenty five hundred dollars, I can justify that. And we actually got scrapes developed to through that with the customers. What we had to do. This is part of why I, I love doing what I was doing. We we were running twenty four seven at Rapid, three shifts. And even Saturdays and Sundays in different aspects, we could turn stuff around. The ability, though, what we said is we never want to say no to a customer request, turn around a part, time-wise.
0: Never wanted to say no because of the time request.
1: I mean, if they said we need a part in 24 hours, we literally had customers who would send someone on a plane to boston yeah drive up pick up parts and get back on the plane and back with them the same day that's how badly they needed the parts we didn't gouge them. we we were expensive it was reasonable within our realm
0: right right and i'm sure you had a lot of times where you said no right it's just
1: um there weren't many there weren't many if it if it wasn't feasibly possible with the hours, yes, then we, we we would share that. We'd say it's we would tell them exactly what we did need. and and we had a one of our core values was under promise over deliver. Mm-hmm. And
0: it seems pretty hard with what you were promising,
1: not really. It got embedded in the culture because it was part of what I would talk about in that lunch with Jay, everybody knew is that I would rather tell you three days come in at two let's say you you say tell me absolutely positively I need two days I'm like listen I can't promise you the two days I'll promise you three days because if you promise them two and you miss for whatever reason you scrap the parts and you know maybe 95% of the time we're not going to scrap the parts but it does happen and if you don't hit the two days then you're the goat they're rightfully pissed off at you if you promise three days and everything goes right and you ship it so they get it in two days, then you're a hero.
0: Yeah. And if you're a hero, boy, they're they're going to come back no, no matter what the price. Um, yeah. So under promise over deliver. Sure. So we got under promise over deliver. We got build your capacity to keep up with your demand that you get from sales. Are there any other factors? Uh, I think I heard in your podcast, you were talking about payment how that can affect pricing that's another trick
1: when you automate your estimating you can create formulas that take that can be really really I don't necessarily want to use the word complex but could have a lot of factors and one of the things that you can do is have a multiplier on your price based upon how companies pay you so What I like to use as an example is you use a standard payment of 30 days as there's no multiplier. You multiply the price by one. Let's say, though, that 45 days, you multiply it by 1.01. You add a 1% cost of money for the extra 15 days. For 60 days, you add a 1.02. You're getting a 2% adder. If they're like GE, and they pay in 90-plus days, I put on a 5% adder.
0: Yeah. What about if they pay right away? Do you have something in that equation?
1: Nobody pays right away. We, we, um, when interest rates were low,
0: we, we would give a 1% discount. Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely, some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, And I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. I think I've got a guy I interviewed. He's brilliant. Um, he's this Mennonite guy. His name is Jay Souter, And I'm pretty sure he had a, like a significant discount if he got paid right away. But, we, we had really good cash
1: flow, so I didn't care. Right. Um, and, and, and so here's the other thing on payment. Credit card processing costs you 2.5%. And if you weren't approved for terms, I added two and a half percent on to your price for the credit card processing. I wasn't going to eat that.
0: Yeah, I guess when you're doing one offs, you could do credit card. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. And one of the other things
1: we did is we automated the credit checking for customers. We were integrated into the DMV Street database. So our customer service people could instantly prove a new customer if we needed to. These are all the little things. (laughs) Very
0: interesting. Anything else about pricing? Anything else people might not know about what they can do so they can raise prices. Because you're a student of negotiation, and this is definitely way different from machinery dealing. That's like dark arts of you know something could be 50 or 30 or whatever.
1: Yeah, the one thing that we did is we had different shop rates for different complexity parts in the machine world. So we had what they called simple, medium, high complexity and we had different hourly rates and the hourly rates aren't say real rates and these are approximations however we were towards the end say we were for simple parts we were roughly two hundred dollars an hour for medium complexity parts we were three hundred dollars an hour high complexity parts things that require certain machines certain people in the shop essentially they they could blow up your shop these types of parts if there's too many of them we only wanted and whether it was five percent of hours or five percent of revenue or whatever, i think it was ours we really managed and we would not go over five percent and we use price as a throttle so that we would never go over five percent and if we were under we were fine there are a lot of customers who give you some parts you just don't want to do and i say fine i'll do them however this is the price and we were up over 800 dollars an hour on the complex parts at the end
0: and what would your cost be on price. something like that it's hard
1: to tell because you you might have a machinist who's ten dollars more than the other guy but what's the opportunity cost and you know how many simple parts could he whip out in the same you know as opposed to a less experienced operator or setup person. It's what we just said is make it worth our while. We're capping at 5% of say hours and the dollars per hour really didn't reflect the costs or profit margin or anything like that. It was, we use price to throttle demand.
0: That makes sense. So, I mean, that makes total sense. Um, so, and, and, and I
1: think, I'm going to, you ask what so I think people get stuck that price has to stay the same regardless of the demand, regardless of the season. And there's definitely seasonality and definitely there's periods of price increases or more demand than capacity in the machining world. And I think a lot of shops are afraid to raise their prices. I think you need to be really fluid because when prices go down, when there is less demand, buyers are going to be pitting you against the other shops and you may may get less money. You you might have to sharpen your pencil. However, there's a lot of hesitation of shops when there is a lot of demand to really bring the pricing up to meet that demand, to essentially make on that pricing triangle example your capacity, meet your demand.
0: Is there more hesitation to do that or then to bring it down to get the job? Um, I
1: think the customers force you to bring it down.
0: Or the customer could just go, go to somebody else though. Right, well, that's what I mean. you, If you don't bring it down, you're going to lose business in one way or another. But I mean, the question is, will the customer just go to somebody else without even asking first or is that not really how it well, works? The, they always get a quote from you.
1: And if you give a plug for paperless, if you're using paperless as opposed to doing it by spreadsheet or your ERP system, you're going to have more time to have conversations to find out how your price looks. You're going to be able to get the quote back faster. And
0: that's an interesting irony there. It's you get it back faster, automated. So then you have time for the conversation. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Just a couple more questions. You know, we talked about, how you're, you're into Chris Voss, writer of the negotiation book, Never Split the Difference. I think it's genius. So, you know, you can imagine how I would use it in the machinery business. Why are you taking this? You're, you're, you said you're in a mastermind group or you're? I'm I'm in an entrepreneurial coaching group. Yeah. Okay. How are you applying or going to apply the negotiation techniques you've learned in there? Look at it as There's certainly
1: applications in business. However, there's a lot of personal interactions. And if you think about some of the underlying themes, using Chris's techniques does is makes the other person feel better about the negotiation. And if someone feels better about negotiation with you, then they are more likely to interact with you in the future. And there's so much power in that, whether in business or personally. I think it makes you a better communicator, probably a better human.
0: Interesting. If people are interested in learning more about Chris Voss, episode 80 and 81 of the show, uh, we go into that. But I remember listening to his, you know, in when I interviewed him, and then when you did your show about pricing, you guys mentioned never leaving money on the table. They both said that. And what I've learned, I've made some mistakes, sometimes never leaving, or trying to never leave money on the table, leaves money on the table in the long run. So you have to be careful.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Tell me when uh, serendipity has played a a big role in your life. I know you've talked about that. Just one, one thing either recently or or just comes to mind, man, serendipity, just this changed my life.
1: Well, I didn't use the word serendipity. I think of it more placing yourself in the path of luck. Yes. And no specific example has come to mind, Noah. However, on one of my cars, I have a license plate that says B first, EE first. And it comes from a podcast that I heard with Gabrielle Reese, the former Olympic volleyball player from the US. And she was moved to Malibu with her husband Laird Hamilton, the surfer. She would go to the grocery store, and Gabrielle, she's beautiful, she's accomplished, she's married to this amazing guy, and she'd go in the grocery store, and all these women would be in snobs and wouldn't say hi to her and just stuck up, and
0: because she was famous, or well, this
1: is where the story goes: is he all of a sudden had that epiphany that they were intimidated. And even though these women were highly successful in, in, in many ways in their own lives, Gabby intimidated them. So she reached out first. She started smiling. She started saying hello. And then all of a sudden, the world changed. These women started talking to her. She made a lot of friends. And that's philosophy of hers now is be first. And I think a lot of great things start have started for myself by being first, by enlisting conversations, initiating, reaching out to someone, even when it was uncomfortable. And, you know, perhaps you can relate to this. There may be a podcast guest that, you know, would
0: really like to have on.
1: You're uncomfortable reaching out because they're sort of intimidating. And one of the reasons you want to have them on. So it's a reminder of myself when I look at that car, played on it, is to be first. Don't be scared of being rejected. There's wonderful doors that open by initiating
0: wow that is that is so interesting you know you hear things one way you hear things another way and that the way you just said that is it's definitely gonna just stick with me i try to do that sometimes i do it sometimes i don't
1: i guess i'm a believer in creating my own serendipity and and i think you are in the ways that you approach it it's i'm trying yeah trying it's yeah. uh it's you could sit back and wait for it to happen however it's, it's a lot more likely to
0: happen if you do something about it now it definitely seems like you've just gone for it i'll, I'll give
1: you i'll give you here's an example that's changed something Noah. uh i'm sitting here in a building in rye new hampshire called airfield place and i moved to the seacoast new hampshire 2020. Um, one of the things that i like to do is pretty physically active and i like to have bowls and one of those is Emotionally competitive in the 400 meter sprint, so running once around a football field. Really? And they actually, yeah, they actually have races for call us seniors. And I drove by this building; it's pretty large. I said, you know, I wonder if they would let me run inside in the winter because the track's covered with snow. It's cold. And lo and behold, I reached out, and the building was for sale. Bottom line is, I ended up buying the building. I've put in a, it's a 65,000 square foot.
0: This was after you sold your company? <laughs>
1: after I sold the company, yeah. It's 65,000 square foot fitness and wellness facility. I have leased some space to some really world-class operators. A gym, the six indoor pickleball courts, real high-end physical therapy, healthy food cafe, where after this, I'm going to go down and either grab a smoothie or uh, some sort of a salad with protein. Uh, we're going to be putting in yoga, Pilates, bar, some movement classes. I'm going to own this business, a recovery business with cold plunges and saunas and red light therapy and or things like that. It all happened because if you want to call it serendipity that the building was for sale. But if I hadn't reached out, I mean, it wasn't advertised on the building or anything.
0: Um, yeah, you tried. I, I call it also, I have a coach and one of the things we it's it's called following your nudges you know it sounds like that's something that you has really served you well uh, is there anything else you would like to say to the people of the world we wrap this up I think you've said a lot of awesome things so i mean if if you want to just say enough said then that's great
1: I'm gonna reinforce what we talked about before I love pricing pricing fascinates me and I really encourage someone who has the power to Change prices, controls pricing. And he's probably a shop owner. Do some experiments. If maybe don't change your pricing wholesale. Uh, maybe a new customer comes in, raise your shop rate twenty five percent. Try some stuff. See what happens. You could look at it as this is selfish. The, the shop owner is going to make all this money at the expense of somebody else. But I know shop owners, and they want to invest in equipment, people, and facilities, and and that's what this American Renaissance in manufacturing is going to need to be able to meet the demand of companies buying our products. We, we need to increase capacity by a lot. And to do that, we need to make money as parts manufacturers. And that's gonna happen by raising prices. Yeah. It's not going in our pockets. We're not buying yachts, Bugattis. It is in most cases it's going back into the shops or, or the bulk of it and so i really encourage someone listening it's like if you want to fuel the growth of your company it starts by raising prices don't be afraid take little experiments and see what
0: happens yeah i mean and that kind of goes back to the be first you know although if you
1: are selling used machinery, you should definitely be as thin as possible so that these shop owners can bring more
0: equipment in. That's true. It. But that would then put us out of business. <laughs> and That's exactly. Then you wouldn't be
1: around for them to buy the next piece of used machinery.
0: They need the, the whole ecosystem, right? Like, even if yes. you... Uh, yes, obviously, I'm I'm saying it in jest. It's, it's unique. Even if you don't like mosquitoes, they need to be there for the ecosystem. I, I prefer not to think yeah. of myself as a mosquito, but... Yeah, it's... E- You need to make a a living and make
1: it worth your while. Otherwise, you'll disappear and the marketplace will be less competitive for used machines.
0: And the question is, of course, everybody asks, well, what is making a living? You know, and and people are coming from different perspectives, you know, like you sell to an automotive company and they say, well, we're negotiating over one cent and you're you're trying to make, you know, fifty thousand dollars or whatever they don't know what we're trying to make but i mean like you know it that's that's what makes it interesting too there's that disconnect but i really like that that send off i think it seems like you're an experimenter and I'm, and the be first thing goes with it and i can see how that's really served you well and uh i'm so glad that we got to know each other and are on both people's podcasts. I'm going to probably ask you to let me be on run your podcast if if you'll do it, because I thought everybody, just so you know, Jay did an amazing interview with me today. I don't know when it's coming out, but the uh, the job shop Until podcast, September of 2023. Yeah. Job shop podcast. It's good. And I think you're going to really like the one I'm on. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graf. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.